sign from, from off above. Um, under uh, the proper test, they're known to be counterfeits. And so if I handed you a piece of fool's gold, what would you do to test it? Any ideas? Bite it, right? Have you ever seen the Olympic athletes? What, you, ever, you ever wonder why they bite their medals? Because if it's gold, what should it do? It should leave an indention. But if it breaks your teeth, then it's not gold. Gold is malleable, so you should be able to take a hammer to it and kind of almost, not, not quite like putty or play, but clay or something, but, but it is malleable, and that's how you know that it's gold. Now, the medals that they have for the Olympics now, I understand, are not 100% gold anymore. Um, but they are some kind of composite. Uh, so you can test it to see if it is it's true. The, the, but if you just judge something on the basis of what it looks like, you may be way off because all that glitters is not gold. Well, what about religious teachings that glitter? How do you know if a claim for truth that looks glittery is true or fake? Let's, let's take, for example, a person who claims to know Christ and seems to be denying himself some kind of personal pleasure. You know, we, we tend to look at people who deny themselves personal pleasure as some kind of a spiritual person, right? Because if you're going to deny yourself something that you otherwise would have, you must be spiritual. Well, that's exactly what's going on here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-5. through 5. You have some people who are claiming to deny themselves of some kinds of pleasures, marriage and eating of certain kinds of foods. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is what kind of tests can we give to someone who makes that kind of claim to see if what they're saying is true? If we're going to know what is false, we have to know what is true. We have to know what, the look like, what it looks like, what truth looks like, what kind of quality it has um, in order to, uh, to attack the false statement that's being made or the alleged truth statement. So our text is in the first five verses of 1 Timothy chapter 4. So follow along in your Bible as I read. This is the Word of God. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Paul is trying to help Pastor Timothy, the pastor of Ephesus at this time, help him to see that apostasy must be opposed by those who know the truth. Apostasy must be opposed by those who know the truth. Now let me show you why I call this apostasy. In verse 1 it says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith. That idea of falling away from the faith, the faith is just another way of saying some will apostatize. That is, apostasy is the opposite of repentance. So, what is repentance? Turn from God or from sin, from idols to the living God, right? From sin to God. So, the opposite of that is turning from God to sin, to the idols. That's apostasy. 
It's, it's having, uh, it's like Hebrews 10, 26 through 30, that, that a person receives the knowledge of the truth, but then he goes on sinning willfully. See, he, he had turned at some point, not genuinely obviously, but at some point he, he embraced to some degree the truth of God, and then he passed that up so that he could go on sinning willfully. And that text says that there's no hope for him. There's no sacrifice for sins for someone who's not willing to turn back to God. That's apostasy. It's, it's not that a person loses his salvation, that somehow he became a Christian and then now he becomes a non-Christian. That doesn't happen. Uh, that's impossible according to John 10 and Romans 8 and other places. Uh, this is talking about someone who tastes of the blessings of of God and even of the Holy Spirit in some sense, but then turn away from it to their own sins. A person falls away. That's what Paul's talking about here in in um, in verse one. Actually, this whole text. So, a couple observations here in verses one through five. Number one, we should not be surprised when apostasy comes. We should not be surprised when apostasy comes. That's why Paul begins. He says, but. So he's, he's contrasting what we just saw last week. That is, at the end of chapter 3, there's this great reality that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He has been proclaimed on the earth, believed on in the world. He's raised up into heaven. He's resurrected from the dead. He now is exalted at the right hand of God. But, in contrast to that, there will be some who don't believe that. There will be some who turn away from the faith. How do we know this? Well, we know this because, notice the first line of verse 1, the Spirit explicitly says. So there's, an, there's some kind of clear prophecy from the Holy Spirit that people will turn away from the faith. Now, what Paul specifically is referring to, we don't know. It could be that he's talking about himself when he's speaking on behalf of God in Acts 20, verses 29 and 30. There... He's talking to the Ephesian elders, by chance, and, and there he's telling them that beware of yourself and your flock because there's coming a day when savage wolves will come around among you and they will not even spare your flock. They'll not even spare their own friends to watch out for them. So it could be Paul talking about his warning to them that there's going to be coming in later days um, those who fall away from the faith. Or he could be speaking about the words of Jesus. Um, Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 10, speaking of the last times, He says, At that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Whatever the case is that Paul is referring to, he's saying that the Spirit has explicitly made it clear that there's going to come a time when people fall away from the faith. That they taste of the truth of the Gospel and then turn away. When will this happen? Well, it says in the second line of verse 1, in later times. And we often think of the text of Scripture in relationship to ourselves, so we think, well, now it's now, and later is later, so it must be talking about later than us. But think about it in terms of, of what Paul was writing. Paul saying, um, in later times, apostasy is going to come. And then the next verse, he's actually saying, apostasy has come. Right? People have fallen away even in your own midst, Timothy, and so you need to stand up to them. Don't let them do it. So what I think is, he's saying is, Timothy's saying, or Paul's saying that 
from the time of Jesus' first coming to the time of Jesus' second coming is included. That's the later times. That there is, during this time, while we're awaiting Jesus' return, there will be people who fall away. Now, will it be true that as it comes nearer to the time of Christ, that more people will fall away? Perhaps. Is it true that there are people who, fall, who are falling away right now? Have people already fallen away from the time of Timothy to us? Absolutely. So I think, I think um, the point that Paul's making is that, that these later times include the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Just like Jesus predicted, in later times, people will fall away from the faith. So what does this apostasy look like? Because we might think that it's overt and vile and obvious like, you know, maybe Satan kind of parades around with his host of demons and he has this huge banner that says God is to be hated, God must be denied, and he simply overpowers us because he's stronger than us. So is that what apostasy is, that, that it's just obvious and overt? Or is it accidental? Is it kind of like a falling back? You know, we, we think of the idea of falling, it seems accidental. Like, oh, that person, he, he couldn't help himself. And I think it's neither one of those. I think actually it is subtle, but I think it's a turning away from, a willful turning away from Christ. That's what apostasy is. So when that happens, here's the message in verse 1, the first part of verse 1. When that happens, don't be surprised. That's what he's saying. This, is, this has been predicted. Some will fall away from the faith. So don't be surprised when this happens. And we'll talk about application here of how we apply that to ourselves at the end. But, but apostasy is most often heresy cloaked in truth. And we need to be, of all people, we need to be those who are discerning enough to recognize that all that glitters is not gold. All that shines when it comes to religious teaching is not truth. So we should not be surprised. Secondly, we should not be fooled when apostasy comes. So we should not be fooled by it, right? We should not be uh, taken... Um, we should not be taken by it. The cause of apostasy is shown in, at the end of verses 1, uh, the end of verse 1 and into verse 2. How does a person get influenced to turn away from God? Well, they pay attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrine of demons. This phrase, paying attention in the middle of verse 1, is not an innocent glance, like, oh, I, I just noticed that. Not a noticing that uh, a casual notice or something. It's, it's actually a, a gaze or giving care, careful attention to. This verbal phrase that's translated paying attention actually comes from one Greek word that's the same word used in Acts 20:28, 20, where Paul says, be on guard or pay attention to the flock of whom the, sh- of, of whom, um, the, the chief shepherd has made you an overseer. So he's saying, be on guard for the flock. Watch out because savage wolves are going to come in. So how does that happen? Is that kind of like a casual glance? I mean, would that be a very good security guard just kind of standing over here seeing what's going out on the side of his eye? No, it's a close attention to the flock. So that's the idea here. These people are not, when they turn over, when they pay attention to the doctrines of demons, um, it's not that they're just have this casual glance like, oh, I was kind of wondering what that was about. No, it's, it's, a, it's a clear gaze, a, a long gaze toward um, these deceitful spirits and the doctrines 
of demon. And as, as they do so, they are seduced because they're not grounded in the Word. They are not grounded in what is true. See, they don't recognize that all the glitters is not gold. And so when they see the glitter, they think, gold, this is truth. And they have their gaze fixed on it and they're quickly turn, turned aside if no one can rescue them or if God allows. And the, the means of their turning away is found in verse 2, that these people are seduced by the hypocrisy of liars. Hypocrisy of liars, that these false teachers wear a mask that look really spiritual, right? We're, we're, we're constantly reminded that Satan transforms himself even as the angel of light. He doesn't often come and do overt attacks on us. It's often subtle and we don't see it. It's through our blind spots and, and of what we're not really focusing on, our weaknesses. And, and Paul's saying that these false teachers are like that. They look really spiritual because, as we're going to see, they, they're self-deniers. Right? They're, they're denying themselves personal pleasures, marriage and food. And so it seems like they're really spiritual, but this hypocrisy is, is of the worst kind. Notice how he describes these, these people by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. So this hypocrisy is, is a, deliberate, it's a deliberate pretense. Hypocrisy is not accidental. Well, I, I was trying to do this, and instead I did this, and so I'm, I'm a hypocrite. No, this is, I'm purposely trying to fool people, to try to act like I'm something when I'm not. That's hypocrisy. It's a purposeful, deliberate pretense. And a lie is a deliberate falsehood, right? It's not, oh, well, I accidentally misinformed them. No, it's I'm purposely trying to mislead them to believe this when this is really true. And so when he says the hypocrisy of liars, he's saying he's doubly condemning them. That you have a deliberate pretense towards giving a deliberate falsehood. Hypocrisy of liars. Try to get convince people to come your way. And they are these people are so blinded. They have gone off so far from the truth that their consciences are seared. They have no spiritual compass. They have no concept of right and wrong. There's no guilt, no remorse for their sin when people approach them on it, no desire to turn from God. And their goal is to convince you to to fall into the same trap, to enjoy the pleasures of their sin with them. Now, Paul gives an example in verse 3. An example of, of apostasy, beginning of verse 3. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. Now, this is not the only way that a person apostatizes. Uh, there are lots of other ways. But here, specifically, these people, after wander, they actually wander away from the faith by following after this doctrine of demons, which is to deny marriage and to deny, to deny certain foods. So they're demanding this. They're saying this is the only way that you can be righteous before God. It's a pietistic, in a negative way, pietistic can also mean a positive holiness, but, but here I'm talking about it is a so-called spiritual self-denial, right? See how good I am? Because I'm, I'm advocating singleness and denying marriage, which 
can be pleasurable, but I'm setting it aside because uh, I'm, I'm so godly. Or the self-denial of unclean foods. And what Paul is going to say to Timothy is, Timothy, all that glitters is not gold. And it looks like it's a really spiritual teaching to deny something of pleasure. But it's not, because why? And he's going to tell them, but God has created all things for our good. And so why should we deny something of which God created to be good? Do you know people like this? People who abstain from all kinds of different things and the reason that they are spiritual in their minds, the reason that they are spiritual is because they're denying these things. And what Paul's saying is, use discernment. Don't just buy whatever they're selling you. Even well-meaning Christians can be like this, overly, negatively pietistic. I'm so spiritual because I've denied myself of something. And we need to be more discerning than that. Possibly they're in their denial of that. They are being godly, but, but it's not quite that simple. It's true that singleness is commended by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 32-35. You know, it's better for you to be single. That sounds like it's better than marriage, and so they take it to the extreme. Since singleness seems to be better than marriage, then marriage is not good, and therefore I'm going to deny anybody of, of good. But the problem is, is that marriage is also commended by Paul in that same chapter. So they, if they understood the whole context of what Paul was saying, they'd recognize that Paul's actually not denying marriage at all. Same thing is true about unclean foods, right? It's true that God calls some foods unclean in the Old Testament. And so a person who's denying himself of something that would bring him pleasure, right? Who doesn't like bacon or ham or whatever, they're, they're denying these things. Somehow it has a little bit of a glitter to it, doesn't it? Like, maybe there is something to this because they're denying something that would otherwise be pleasurable to them. They're self-deniers. But all that glitters is not gold. We tend to think that people who deny themselves of pleasures are the most spiritual people. You know, we might think of monks. Well, you know, they could have been married. They could have had a family and they could have enjoyed all these pleasures outside. Instead, they're off in a monastery and kind of secluded and they just study the Bible all day. and So they must be really spiritual. But in fact, Paul says that those who deny what God has allowed actually have fallen away from the faith. All so-called, so-called spiritual self-denial is not of God. Now, that doesn't mean that all self-denial is, is not of God. There are some things that are, we ought to die, deny ourselves from. But just because a person denies themselves of some pleasure that they otherwise could have does not mean that it's from God. So how do we know? How do we distinguish between fool's gold, the fool's gold of, of doctrines, and the genuine gold of truth? How do we distinguish between the fool's gold of doctrines of demons, which glitters, and the genuine truth or doctrine of the Scriptures? How do we know? Verses 3 through 5, we see that refuting error demands that we know what is true. We must know what is true. In verse 3, at the very end of the verse, he, Paul gives us the identity of these apostasy deflectors. That is, those of us who can deflect apostasy, those who can recognize or discern what is true gold and what is fool's gold. And they are people who believe and know the truth. So the people who recognize God's truth and who believe God's truth are the ones who are able to, going to be able to 
detect when apostasy rises up. The nature of false religion is that at its core, there's an attempt to attain a good standing before God. In other words, it's well-meaning, right? Do you know any of any false religions that are well-meaning? Most of them are, right? They, they want to have a good standing with God, but they do it the wrong way. That's the huge problem. That's the fatal problem. They want to stand before God, but they, they do it through their own works, their own self-denial. And that's why Romans 1, or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 1, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And it's wisdom to those who are being saved. See, they don't understand it. How could you possibly shed all this self-denial? Right? You're saying self-denial is not going to get me to God? No, your works are not going to get you to God. You have to shed all that idea as if you can accomplish anything before God and recognize that it's only Christ and His finished work that you can stand before God. And they don't buy that. They don't like that. It's foolishness to them. The reality is that only Christians can appreciate these things and enjoy them to the full. That is the things that God has created and properly give credit to Him. And so in order to avoid error, we must believe and know the truth. So in response to those who, specifically with this example, deny marriage and food, we must recognize the truth that God made everything good. We must recognize the truth that God made everything good. So notice that in the middle of verse 3. Uh, we'll just read the first part of verse 3. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from food, which God has created to be gratefully shared in. So God created it good. Now, how do we know that God created everything good? Any ideas? He tells us, Genesis 1, after every day, really, and behold, it was good. And then at the end of all of the creation, when men and women are finally made, Genesis 1.31, and behold, it was what? It was very good. Good, 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 good. Very good. And so, don't let someone else call defiled what God has called holy. Right? When was marriage created? Before or after the fall? Before. Okay, so if someone says, no marriage, God's not pleased with marriage, you can have a right standing with God when you're not married. That is, you can only have a right standing with God if you're not married. If you deny yourself of that pleasure, then you have called defiled... He's called marriage defiled when God's called it holy. Right? Isn't that the point of Acts 10? When God comes to Peter, He comes to Peter three times because Peter can't see this, specifically with the second idea of unclean foods, right? He, he says, Take, you know, eat, eat this, Peter. And he says, I can't eat this. It's unholy. And God says, no, I've said it's holy, so eat it. And he has to come back three times because he doesn't fully comprehend. Don't call unholy what I've called holy, Peter. And the truth is that God created these things for His glory and for our good. And as 2 Timothy 6.17 says, so that we could enjoy them and share in them and give thanks for them. So if you can enjoy it and, and share in it and give thanks for it, and God created it to be good, then, then enjoy it. God made everything to be good. God made everything good, I should say. So, how do we apply that for marriage and food? The application for marriage and food that's found at the end of verse 4. 
So, nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. And then verse 5, we see the confidence of knowing the truth. So I'm going to kind of combine these, two, these last two together. So if you, can, if you can affirm that God made it and that, that you can genuinely give thanks to God for it, then enjoy it. Now, this is not a blank check for you to do, do whatever you want. Certainly, this, this does not include sinful practices. God did not create sin. This does not mean that you can just kind of run off into immorality and say, well, you know, the, the sexual relationship God has created, so I'm going to go enjoy it to the glory of God. And you can in the, in the bounds of marriage, but outside of it, you should not. Or, or gluttony, for example. You know, we don't just say, well, you know, God created food to be good, so I'm going to indul- overindulge myself. Um, so what does this evalu- evaluation look like? Verse 5 gives us the answer. How do we receive something with gratitude? It, it, it has to be, verse 5, sanctified by means of the Word of God and prayer. So here's how we can be confident in what is true. This doesn't mean we wave a magic wand, so I've given thanks for it, then, then I can accept it. Instead, we have to, to follow God's sanctions for it. So what, does the scripture, what do the Scriptures say about this particular item or this particular issue? Has God called it good? If so, then we join... And, and share in that with a grateful, heart-filled thanksgiving to God, and we enjoy it to the glory of God. Right? So it's, it's sanctioned by His Word. God has already said it's good, so we enjoy it for His glory. If God has said it was good, then we must not declare that it's not. Again, so how do we know if something glitters is gold or not? And the, the reality is some people are going to say, this, this is not allowed. You know, no one can do this. And in reality, what they're doing is they're binding our conscience and, um, and keeping us from doing what God may have called good. So we need to be discerning enough to be able to make those kinds of decisions on our own. Now, obviously, with children, it's a little bit different because we have to be discerning for them. They're, they're born fools, and we need to, to, um, to use the rod of discipline to drive their foolishness far from them. And so we have to make choices on their behalf. Okay, so that's different. But, but once we come to a place of maturity, um, then we, we have to be discerning on our own. We have to hopefully have been learning discernment along the way so that when we get to the point of having to make choices, we are able to see, okay, you know what? This person said it was, it was denied by God or something that that's, we must deny ourselves of. And we need to recognize, okay, is this something that God created as good? Is this something I can thank God for? Is this something that's sanctioned in the Word of God? Is this something that I can pray about and, and actually um, you know, thank God for? And uh, a couple of things to, to think about. So let me give you three things to consider this afternoon in relation to this passage. Number one, since apostasy will come, we must continue on in the faith, even when people fall away. Since apostasy will come, we must continue on in the faith, even when people fall away. So, the first part of the verse seems to be indicating that we should not be surprised when apostasy comes. It, we should not be surprised when people turn away from the faith. Every time that I hear that a pastor turns away from the faith or that a longtime church member dives into immorality or abandons the faith, I'm shocked. But at the same time, I should not be unsettled in my faith 
And neither should you because the Spirit warns us that this is going to happen. People will fall away in our day. Now let me tell you what I do not mean by falling away. I do not mean that someone leaves our church. That's going to happen too. Okay, but that's not necessarily falling away from the faith. Um, lots of people come and go and we, do, and we need to be a little bit more discerning in our evaluation than just, well, you know, they used to be members of our church and now they're not, so now we know they're, they've apostatized. And well, it's not that simple. What I do mean in falling away from the faith is that someone has actually been presented with the truth. They've, they've uh, made an assent to it in some way and then they've turned away from the faith altogether. Not that they've turned away from our church as if we're the only remnant of truth in the world, right? But they've actually denied the truth. They've denied the reality that Jesus is the promised Messiah and that they're trusting in something else to save them from their sins. They're unwilling to repent of their sins. So it's going to come and we need to be we need to be unsettled. You know, it's kind of like a person in battle you need to recognize that there are going to be shots fired, right? There's there's going to be grenades launched and and mortars launched and and so we need to recognize those are going to come. And that shouldn't unsettle us and send us re- on the retreat like we're done with this. We must have been all wrong all along. Oh, what do we do? In battle, we're, we, we see the mortars, shells fall around us and, and the gunfire you know, whizzes by our head, whatever the case. And what do we do? We, we hold our ground. Keep listening to our commanding officer and keep working towards our goal. And that's what we need to recognize when it comes to apostasy. It's going to happen. It's going to be shocking at times. It's going to be frustrating, but it shouldn't unsettle us where we are ready to give up and follow them on into turning away from faith, following them on into sin. Second observation is that because apostasy will come, we must be grounded in sound doctrine. So we need to watch out for spiritually sounding doctrine that's sourced in hell. The best kinds of false teachers sound spiritual. They use Scripture. And maybe they even have good intentions, but their consciences are seared and they don't respond to being challenged by truth. Right? They don't know what's right and wrong. And so when they teach, they don't see their blind spots. And when someone points them out to them, they won't accept them. They won't accept those blind spots. And so, if we're going to spot those kinds of people that are actually using the Bible, we need to know the Bible ourselves. We can't punt on that responsibility and say, well, you know what, that's the leaders of the church's responsibility. No, it's not. How are you going to know if the leaders are leading you astray? Unless you're grounded in the truth yourself, you see. All that glitters is not gold. And each of us have a responsibility to be able to test the spirits to see if they're from God. Right? We, we need to be able to have enough discernment to distinguish between what is truth and what is error. And we can't do that if we don't know what sound doctrine is ourselves. And so how do we do that? How do we know sound doctrine? I mean, do we take a class on that and then we're done? And I would just say it just means that you need to be a lifelong learner of the Word of God. So you have lots of opportunities here at this church to hear the Word of God preached and taught. 
and there are just loads of resources outside of this church that you can use to help you. And the best one is just the scriptures of themselves, but but you get the idea. Be a lifelong learner. Recognize that that your job of of understanding and being firm and in your comprehension of sound doctrine is never going to end. Just constantly be learning more about God, and as you do, you'll be able to spot what is fool's gold and what is not. Finally, since apostasy will come, we must guard our hearts. We must guard our hearts. We can't guard our hearts in our own strength. We need to do so with the strength that God supplies. We need the Spirit to uphold us. And the way that we enlist the Spirit's power is by being filled with the Spirit. We need to, The idea of that is that we are controlled by the Spirit. And that's really kind of a, a difficult concept to understand because how I want to be filled with the Spirit. So what do I do? Just pray about it? or How, how do I get filled with the Spirit? And there's this great parallel in Ephesians 5 that uh, Bill read this morning. You know, be filled with the Spirit. And when you do, you're going you're gonna to sing to one another and you're going to be thankful and everything and you're going to submit to those who are in authority over you and so on. But how is it that we are filled with the Spirit? Well, if you go to the parallel passage in Colossians 3, it's the same list of all the things that you're supposed to do. Sing, be thankful, submit to your authorities. But instead of be filled with the Spirit, you know how it begins in Colossians 3 text? Let the Word of God dwell in you richly. So what I think is happening there is that God is, is helping us to see this list that's identical, effectively, but at the top is one is be filled with the Spirit, the other is let the Word of God dwell in you richly. But these things are identical. The way that we are filled with the Spirit is that we let the Word of God dwell in us richly. So how do we do that? It goes back to the previous point. Be a lifelong learner. We must guard our hearts. We have to do the work that the Spirit is working to do in us. In other words, be complicit with what the Spirit's trying to do in us. And we do this by constantly feeding on the Word. We'll see this next week when we look at verse 6 and following. One scholar put it this way, a person who doesn't submit to the Holy Spirit will be seduced by the deceiving spirits. Continue in the faith. Be grounded in sound doctrine and guard your heart. It's the only way you're going to be able to spot fool's gold and be able to, to, to embrace the true gem, treasure of the Word of God and, um, and help others to do the same. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can be confident in Your Word and its truth. And we're thankful that You have inspired the writings of the text and that You have preserved the Word um, uh, through the manuscripts and now through the translations that we have. We're thankful what a great resource we have. And we pray that you'd help us to study, to show ourselves approved workmen who do not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing and understanding the word of truth. We pray that we would search the scriptures daily to see if what is being said is true. We pray that we would be grounded in sound doctrine. We don't want to be deceived, even by people within this within our own church, because Paul said that that there will arise even from our own midst people who are. Uh, trying to lead others astray. And, and it could even happen among our leadership. Could could happen even from the pastor. And so we, we need to be ready and we need to know what is true. 
So we pray that you'd help us. This is a daunting task. It's bigger than us. We can't do it on our own. We need your strength. So would you supply it to us and help each of us to be faithful, Lord, especially the, the responsibility that I have with of imparting the word, reading it and explaining it to the congregation. I pray that you would help me in that regard. I don't want to take it lightly or or to be lax in my responsibility. So please help me um, as I do this uh, so that we all can be um, deepened in our relationship with you and that none of us turn away from you but, but embrace your truth and, and, um, and for eternity we'll forever praise you and the Lamb who is slain. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Our final song is uh, on...